If you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. We are beginning a new book this morning. 2 Peter, we went through 1 Peter, of course, when we, uh, before we went through Zephaniah, and I figured why not, we'll, we'll cover 2 Peter uh, as well. When we get back into the New Testament, there is uh, much about this book that, uh, of course, like any book, will be, I think, very helpful for us, but uh, a lot of things to, to work through, a lot of sweet truths to meditate upon, to be shaped by, to be challenged by. Many truths that call us to be on guard against error. So we'll, we'll see some of these things as we move through the book of Second Peter. But this morning, I, I just want to look at the greeting. Uh, there is much in this greeting that we can glean, learn from. And, and so I just want to look uh, at the first two verses, this opening greeting that Peter writes here. So we will begin together by reading the word of God. And uh, then we'll open with a word of prayer. So Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm reminded of the words from the Apostle Paul. What do you have that you have not received? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, and we have received all manners of spiritual blessings through Christ. Spiritual blessings from heaven have been poured out upon us, not as a result of anything that we have done, but as a result of your mercy and grace. And your mercy and grace is as a bottomless ocean that we can never reach the end of. So Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we look at your word, the revelation that you have given to your people through your apostles. And as we see especially these great truths about saving faith, about how You in Your mercy have given to us the very thing we need to be justified before You. That is faith. And Lord, I pray that as we meditate upon Your Word, that it would humble us, remove any pride that resides within our hearts, 
that we would be a people who are filled with gratitude, a people who rely upon you in desperate prayer for all things, and the people who are secure not because of our deeds, but because of your grace. So speak to us this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we begin making our way through this short letter of 2 Peter, I want to begin by just giving a brief overview of the things that we can expect to see in this letter and some of its context before we focus the majority of our time this morning on the opening greeting. Um, I think it's important, just as a matter of context, to remember that this letter is written towards the end of Peter's life. And he knows that that's the case. He knows that he is about to die. He says as much in chapter 1, verse 14, when he states there, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So this is, in essence, a farewell address from Peter. As Peter comes to the end of his life, what he says here is what he believes to be most important. What is it that he drives home? What is it that we as Christians need to hear that he believes we need to hear? Knowing that he will have no more opportunities to speak to these Christians, what does he want to leave as a message that continues echoing in their minds even after he's gone? And what we find is that Peter is not so much interested in giving some new piece of insight or some new bit of wisdom. No, what he wants to do is to remind them. Remind them of the things that they already know and should know. On three occasions we read of this very intention that he has to remind. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Then the very next verse, verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It is, it is reminding that we often need the Gospel, Christianity, and the Christian life is not and has never been about reinventing the wheel and coming up with new ways to live and new ways to preach 
the Gospel and new takes and spins on the faith. In fact, it is often the case that it is those who are trying to do new things, they're the ones who wander off into myths and false doctrine and all manners of heresy. They're the ones who drift away from Christ. Peter wants Christians to be rooted and grounded in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as even Jude says. And so throughout this letter, we will be reminded of the fundamentals of the Christian life. And that includes things like the grace of God, which Peter begins his letter in verse 2 saying he wanted to multiply and increase. And then he concludes the letter in chapter 3, verse 18 with an exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes there are commentators who are a little bit too intellectual for their own good who miss the things that are staring right in front of their faces. And there have been many who have argued that the book of Second Peter is, is really a book that teaches no gospel at all. It's a works-based driven book. There is no grace in the book. And yet, what do you find in the beginning and the end? It's Peter speaking of the grace of God calling the people of God to grow and increase in that grace. We are reminded as well in this book that we are to grow and excel in sanctification. We we don't just believe in Jesus, claim our ticket to heaven, and then check out. A true Christian grows in holiness as he pursues that holiness throughout the entirety of his life. We are reminded to be watchful, to be on guard against false teachers. We are reminded of the judgment that is to come. And we are reminded of the hope of the new heavens and the new earth that is promised to come. So these are just a a small sampling of some of the things that we will see and look at in more detail as we make our way through this letter. But I want to begin this morning by looking specifically at some of the fundamentals of the Gospel that we see just in this opening greeting. Peter, of course as we know, as we've seen from 1 Peter, Peter doesn't let his greetings go to waste. He, He packs these Greetings full of good, rich, sound theology, encouraging truths, reminders about what God has done for His people. And so I want to look at these truths together. Uh, once, uh, once Peter here uh, introduces himself in verse 1 as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he then addresses his letter, which is uh, another circular letter, much like uh, 1 Peter was. It's another circular letter. He, he doesn't name all of the exact locations that it's going, but it's, it's another circular letter, more than likely addressed to those same people as he refers to it as the second letter that he has, he has written. 
uh, to them. But he addresses this letter, you'll see, to those who have obtained a faith. And this faith here, this word for faith, is not faith in the sense of a, a certain set of doctrines. It's not faith in the sense of just a, a received religion. Right? Sometimes we can, we can speak of the Christian faith as if it's just this, this, this religion with a certain set of doctrines, a certain set of beliefs. We can use the language of faith in that very manner. But that's not how Peter is using the word faith here. By faith, he is referring to that act of the will, the mind, the heart, whereby we, we see ourselves as sinners and we see Christ as the Savior of sinners and we grasp hold of Him by faith. He is speaking here of saving faith by which we are justified before God. And in this greeting, he describes all Christians as those who have this kind of faith, this saving faith. But he also says several things about this saving faith that I think are worth hearing freshly. These are, these are truths that are worth being reminded of as we think about the nature of saving faith faith. I have four points about faith that I want to bring out for you this morning. And, and one of the things that Peter says here about this saving faith is that it is obtained. Saving faith is obtained. You can see that he says this in verse 1. Again, he says, to those who have obtained a faith. Now, it's an interesting word there, and sometimes it's translated in different ways. The CSB and others say to those who have received a faith. The NET says to those who have been granted a faith. But the word most often has to do with choosing someone for something, and sometimes even by the casting of lots. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 9, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is serving as a priest before God. And we're told that according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The priests cast lots to determine who it is who will burn the incense, and Zechariah was chosen. That's the same word that we have here in this opening greeting, to be chosen by Lot. Or consider another one, John chapter 19, verse 24, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, and the Roman soldiers wanted to divide up His garments among themselves. They they did what? They cast lots to determine who would receive what piece of the garment. And the same word is used there for casting lots. Or one more example is in Acts chapter 1, verse 17, where Peter is speaking of Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and he describes Judas as one 
who was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Here the actual casting of lots is not described, but the fact that Judas had been chosen or appointed to be one of the twelve disciples. That's what the emphasis is. The point is that the sense of the word communicates the idea of being chosen or something is allotted or given by God's sovereign hand. It is God, of course, who always determines the outcome of the casting of lots. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says that the lot is cast in the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. And here, in 2 Peter chapter 1, the idea is the same. Peter is saying of Christians that something has been allotted to them. Something has been granted to them. They have obtained something by the sovereign hand of God. And what they have obtained is faith. Now, God could have, of course, determined to allot for us something different. He could have determined to allot for us judgment as a consequence for our sin. And of course, we've, we've seen that that's what He did for many of the people of Judah. We even saw that this morning in Sunday school when in Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah is speaking about the depraved nature of man and specifically the people of Judah. And he uses that imagery of an Ethiopian being unable to change his skin color and the leopard being unable to change his spots. And then he goes on and and God says to the people of Judah, I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot. The portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. But that's what he can do. That's what he has the freedom to do in response to sin is to apportion judgment upon sinners. But if you're in Christ, If you have trusted in the Lord, that is not what has been portioned out for you. He has allotted something different. He has given to you the gift of faith. Faith is not something, friends, that just arises out of the heart naturally. It is not something that we arrive at through our own independent intellect. It is not ultimately the result of having a superior nature or just making better choices. If you have faith in Jesus, if you have a saving faith, that faith is not from yourself. It did not originate from you, but faith itself is a gift from God. And we should do well to Remember that central truth. Not only should this fact cause us to rejoice all the more in the grace of God and His kindness in saving us, 
We who deserve nothing more than judgment. We who were no different and no better than the people of Judah. We who had no greater moral standards than the people of Judah. We deserved judgment and yet God in His grace gave us faith. Gave us righteousness. This should cause us all the more to rejoice in the amazing grace of God. It should cause us to be humble and to be thankful to the Lord, but it should also make us a very, very patient people when it comes to the unbelief of others. We, above all people, should be the most patient. You see, if you believe that faith is an act of the human will untouched by the hand of God, then it makes sense why you may grow impatient. Why you may become frustrated when other people reject the Gospel and when they live like wicked sinners. All they need to do, right, is do what you did. Why can't they do it? They need to come to their senses. They need to stop being so stubborn. Or maybe, maybe the fault lies at your feet. You're not persuasive enough. Your arguments aren't clear enough. Your pleas aren't passionate enough. Right? This also can be a frustrating and defeating problem. But if you believe that faith is a gift from God given through means of faithfully proclaiming the Gospel and sowing seeds, then rather than growing frustrated when the message is rejected, you know what your response should be? You should be driven all the more to prayer. You should be patient and you should be driven in desperation to prayer. We who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation should be above all the most prayerful people there is. Because we believe that our efforts will amount to nothing apart from the sovereign hand of God. A Calvinist who who never prays is really the biggest hypocrite of all, is he not? I mean, how cold, how cold does the heart have to be to know that the sovereign hand of God is absolutely necessary for the salvation of sinners, and yet you never ask for that hand to be at work. This ought never to be the case if faith itself is a gift from God, as Peter states here, if it is something that we've received, something that is allotted to us, then we, more than anyone else, ought to be the most prayerful people there is. And we, more than anyone else, ought to be the most patient people. The most long-suffering. I was speaking the other day, I was telling Harrison about this the other day, we're, we're constantly trying to have conversations with Mormons and to share the gospel with them. And 
getting a meeting with them is about the hardest thing imaginable because if they get any hint whatsoever that you may actually challenge what they believe, they want to shut the conversation down immediately. And I was just thinking about how opposite that is from, from a Christian, and especially a Christian who believes in the sovereignty of God. We, we want to take every single opportunity we can, and we want to be as patient and as long-suffering as we can. If God, in His grace, would give me a thousand meetings with the single Mormon, I'd use all 1,000 of them. It's very different from the way that the world views things and, and the way that many Christians view things when they do not believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. So we ought to be prayerful. We ought to be patient. Self, we recognize, is a gift from the Lord. But, but moving on, we, we not only find here that saving faith is received or obtained, but Peter says of saving faith that it grants an equal honor. It grants an equal honor. Again, verse 1, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Literally, the word means equally honorable or precious. Now, there's some disagreement as to who Peter is speaking of here when he says that it is of equal honor with ours. Some have suggested that he is referring to the apostles, these Gentile Christians that he's writing to, have a faith that is equal to theirs. Others have suggested that he's referring to Jews, of course, including himself among them, and that he's reaffirming the fact that Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus have an equal inheritance together. And I think the latter is, is correct. Peter, of course, was no doubt an apostle, but he was also a Jewish Apostle, and we see throughout his ministry that the inclusion of Gentiles into the promises of the kingdom was a very, very significant matter and a constant matter. In Acts chapter 15, for example, in verses 7 to 9, when a controversy arose over the inclusion of Gentiles in the saving works of God, Peter stood up at the Jerusalem council and he said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the Gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And here again, Peter is saying to Gentile believers, your faith is equal to our own. There is no distinction between us and you. It is by faith that all the promises of Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, come to us who are not Jews by birth. We become children of Abraham when we are united by covenant 
to the promised seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It is very much like a marriage covenant. When you, when you place your faith in Christ, you are joined to Him in the marriage of the new covenant. And the two become one. And as a result, what belongs to the husband, what belongs to Jesus, now also belongs to His bride, the church, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. And that's what Peter is saying here. We have a faith that is of equal honor that makes both Gentiles and Jews one in Christ. The dividing walls have been broken down and now the two have become one. And so when we are reading through our Bibles, when we are reading through the, the Old Testament and we see all of these glorious promises that are to come, we're included in those. At one time, we, we, could, we could look at those and we could, we could say, there's no hope for us. This is made with... This is made with the children of Israel. But of course the prophets, they, they dropped hints along the way, speaking of a day when, when the nations would join themselves to, to Israel. And, and once we get to the new covenant, we see how all of these things begin to unfold. We join ourselves to Israel's king. And now receive the promises that were given to the people of God then. We now have an equal honor and equal standing even with those who came before. Now, a third thing that we see about saving faith from this greeting is that saving faith trusts in the righteousness from Jesus. Saving faith trusts in the righteousness that comes from Jesus. I want you to look at me again at the text. Peter says there to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And then the ESV understands the, the words that follow as referring to Jesus' own righteousness or His just character by which He saves. But I would argue that Martin Luther was actually right in understanding here this righteousness as that alien or outside, external righteousness of Jesus that is imputed to us by faith. Luther translated the text as referring to the faith in the righteousness which our God gives. Well, to smooth it out some more, Peter says here that Christians have obtained a faith in the righteousness from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talking about what it is that we place our faith in. What is our hope? What are we trusting in to save us? What do we receive from Christ to save us from judgment? We don't, we don't have faith in our own works. 
We don't, we don't earn our salvation. We, we don't do a certain amount of good deeds to merit our righteousness before God. Yesterday, I was listening to an interview with Dennis Prager, who's an Orthodox Jew, and he was explaining in, in his own words what he perceived to be the differences between Protestant Christianity and Orthodox Judaism, and he just flat out said it. Judaism teaches that you can earn your way to heaven. You can earn your righteousness before God. We merit our righteousness before God. Friends, that is the opposite of the Gospel. We cannot earn our salvation. There are no amount of deeds that can give us the righteousness that we need to stand perfectly before God justified. If we are to have any sort of hope of eternal life, we need to stand perfect before Him. We need a perfect righteousness. We need, therefore, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. Because even as we discussed this morning, every righteous work we do will be tainted by sin. We need an alien righteousness. That's one of the fundamental truths of Gospel. Jesus becomes our righteousness. His righteousness is our righteousness. His obedience, His works, His perfection under the law becomes ours by faith. And we are declared to be righteous because Jesus is our righteousness. This was even promised long ago by Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 16, when prophesying of a day to come when Jerusalem would be restored. He says that, that it would have a new name, and the name by which it will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. And of course, Paul also speaks of this as well in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, when he speaks of the righteousness from God that is apart from the law and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is what Peter is speaking of. We have obtained, he says, a faith in the righteousness from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is our righteousness and God has graciously opened our eyes to see that and to receive it. I mean, when you hear the Gospel, when, when you're an unbeliever, and for so long you have rejected the Lord, and then the Lord does a work, a supernatural intervention in your heart, what He causes you to see is your desperate wretchedness before Him and your desperate need for a Savior. For, for someone apart from yourself to save you. You know, in our, our particular culture, we, we're all about sort of doing things by your own bootstraps, right? Hard work. All of these things are good, but they will fail you. 
when it comes to righteousness before God and salvation before Him, we need something external. And that is what the gospel provides for us in Christ. He grants to us that holiness, that sanctification, that glorification, that righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. And we receive it through faith that is given it, given uh, to us by the Lord. Now, there is still a fourth matter that we see here about saving faith. And, and we'll conclude with this. Which is that saving faith also confesses Jesus as God and Savior. Saving faith confesses Jesus as God and Savior. I want you to notice with me again at the end of verse 1. Peter gives two titles to Jesus. Not one, but two. Jesus is called here God and Savior. Now, it's very often the case that the apostles will use the word God to refer to the Father, and they will use the word Lord to refer to Jesus. And in fact, Peter does that in the very next verse where he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, that is, God the Father, and of Jesus our Lord. Now both terms, God and Lord, speak and refer to deity, to a divine nature. God, of course, is a very obvious one. We all recognize that. But Lord, likewise, is the term that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the divine name of God, Yahweh. In the, in the New Testament, it's kurios. It's the same word that's used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to the God of Israel. And so both terms speak of divinity. However, due largely to ignorance, or at times, and perhaps many times as well, to the influence of false religions, some people make a very big deal out of saying, that Jesus is not God because He's often called Lord and not God. Here, of course, we have a clear example. The apostles finding no problem using the term, using the term to speak of the same person. And even here, the, the grammatical construction of this phrase indicates very clearly that Peter is not speaking of two persons here, but one. Jesus is called here both God and Savior. In fact, we find the, the same construction again at the end of the book in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There... Jesus is called both Lord and Savior. And here in the beginning, He is called both God and Savior. Jesus was no doubt a man. We recognize that. We confess that truth. He lived. He breathed. He 
He slept. He died. Of course, he rose again. He was as much a man as you and I. He required the the same sort of sustenance, the, the same sort of oxygen, right? He was a man, just like you and me. He was also fully God. He never ceased to be God. Certainly, he clothed and he veiled his divine nature. And and when that veil was removed, as we see what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens with Jesus when he removes for a moment his humanity? He removes the veil, if you will. He, he's shining. As bright as the sun. The, the full weight of His glory is manifested. And for a moment, His disciples see it and they are dumbstruck. It's good that we are here, Lord. When He removes the veil, that's what we see. But His... Human nature can also veil that divine nature. But he never ceases to be God. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one by whom all things are upheld. And he is the one to whom all things will bow and give glory to. And saving faith True faith must see this and confess it, believe it, trust in it, delight in it, rejoice in it. But if you don't accept that Jesus was God, you don't know Jesus and you don't have life. Mormons. And Jehovah's Witnesses, they both claim to worship Jesus. They all use the same language that we use. They speak of Scripture. They speak of faith. They speak of grace. They speak of Jesus. But they all mean totally different things by those terms. Definitions are important. We see this especially in in our day and age. I I see all the time people getting into debates and arguments, whether they be political or any other matter, and a lot of the times using different definitions for the same words. And that's the case with Mormons, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with all false religions that claim to be following Jesus. They speak of His name and they don't know Him because the Jesus they claim to follow is not the Jesus revealed through the Word of God. He is not God or He's not fully man. And if that is the Jesus that someone claims to worship, they have no salvation in His name. And so if you ever have an opportunity Mormon or a Jehovah's uh, Witness, I would implore you not to waste that opportunity. I've known 
as if it's a badge of honor that when they encountered a Mormon, they, they shooed them away from, from their house and said, you know, don't come back here until you bring the Bible with you. That's, that's a wasted opportunity. Now, use it as an opportunity to bear witness to the true Christ. And you can take him to a passage like this and show them a very clear example where Holy Scripture very clearly states that Jesus is unequivocally God in every sense of the word. And so we see that saving faith must be able to say with Peter that Jesus is both God and Savior. And it's necessary that we confess that truth as well because if Jesus is not God, neither is He Savior. Who we have sinned against ultimately is God. And it is God who must reconcile us to Himself. It is God who must forgive our sins. And if Jesus is not God, then He is neither able to nor does He have the authority to forgive our sins. But if you remember, what did did He say to the scribes before He healed the paralytic man? They They were angered that He was saying to that paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. They thought He was blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. How did Jesus respond? He asked them a question. Which is easier? To say, rise, pick up your mat and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Well, of course, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because nobody can verify that. And so what does he do? In order to demonstrate his authority, he does the seemingly more difficult work of healing a paralytic. And he said, so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turned to the paralytic man and said, rise, take up your mat and walk. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and to save Sinners, because he is God himself. He is God in the flesh. So we trust in him, not only as a man, but as God in the flesh. And as we trust in him, he promises to forgive us of our sins. As we look to him as God and Savior, as we trust in him, he gives to us righteousness by which we can stand before God justified and by which our sins can be forgiven. That is the nature, friends, of, of true saving faith. It has divine origin to it. It is God who just as He plants within us a new heart, He plants within us a saving Faith that comes with that new heart. And what do we do? We believe. And we believe in that righteousness of Christ. We believe that He is God and we believe that He is Savior. And thus, we are saved. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Well, Father, we are indeed grateful that in your grace and mercy, you looked upon us in our sin, in our state of rebellion, and you did not give us a portion of judgment. But you chose to set your saving love upon us. And for no other reason than the fact that you love us. Other reason than your alone. You ripped our stony hearts out of us and gave us living hearts. You took our dead corpses and you breathed life within them. You caused us to rise from spiritual death. You gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. And then once we were able to see You as You truly are. Once our hearts began to beat for the first time. Once we heard the Gospel in truth, for the first time, we believed. And we believed because of Your grace. And so, Lord, we are grateful for Your sovereign hand. And we do pray and we cry out to You that You would cause Your saving hand not only to them, but that You would cause it to work even more among us bringing those who do not know You to a saving knowledge of Christ. We pray as well that You would pour it out in a mighty way upon those whom we are around, our neighbors, our co-workers, those whom we have opportunities to speak the Gospel to, that You would use the feeble means of our, our words and that You would infuse within them great power those seeds that are sown would grow and bear fruit to eternal life. And so, Lord, we ask that you work and work among us, we pray in Jesus' name.